0: Should we call Gleason 6 prostate cancer, cancer? For many uh, experts, the answer is no, it's not cancer. Uh, You never die from a Gleason 6 diagnosis. Today, my conversation is with Adam Kibble. Chair of Urology at Harvard Medical School, Department of Urology, and Chair of Urology at Dana-Farber. Dr. Kibble received his BA and MD degree from Cornell University. Then he went on to pursue his residency at Harvard University, Department of Urology. Afterwards, he completed his fellowship at Johns Hopkins in 1999. His practice focuses on minimally invasive approaches to urologic cancers. He has written over 400 peer-reviewed papers and have received grant support from multiple agencies, including the National Cancer Institute for his research. The other conversation that Dr. Kibble and I had was on lifestyle medicine and the probability of reducing lethal or dying from prostate cancer in people who have a high risk for advanced cancer. This is one of his published studies. My conversation with Dr. Kibble on prostate cancer and Gleason 6 pathology. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my goal and intention to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. Adam Kibble in the house, Adam, thank you so much. A late day, a busy day, of course, for you because you're a chair of a major institution. I really appreciate you being on.
1: Oh, no. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure.
0: Pleasure. Thank you. Let's get right to it. Where do we start? <laughs> when, I, when you agreed to do this podcast, I said, first of all, I was thrilled. And second of all, I I well, got to see what he's done. I know you published many, many papers. Before we go there, my understanding, so I've been practicing lifestyle and integrative urology for close to 20 years. And, you know, I'm like, wow, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of cases. I've seen, I've learned what works, what doesn't from an integrative and holistic perspective. I have a better idea. Well, I've seen a lot. You have been practicing for over 32 years, I want to say, yeah, roughly? Yeah, that
1: sounds about right. Sounds about right. 1999 so, is when I finished my fellowship.
0: 1999, and that's from Hopkins.
1: That was my fellowship at Hopkins. Before uh, that, Hopkins. I was at the Brigham doing my residency.
0: So you were. So you were mentored by Patrick Walsh and at, the group. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm a history buff, so I know that Hugh Hapton Young, the history of 1904, first prostatectomy, and those kinds of things, they fascinate me. I gave her, my boss at NY. this is the, the, the paper. This is in the 1980s or so at the AUA, they gave calendars with beautiful images, and I don't know why they'd never done that again. I don't know if you, 1980s, 1990s? And yeah. one of them is like the history of prostatectomy. And so you have all these kind of images. And one of them is the paper that is Patrick Walsh with Herb Lepora as is a resident, I want to say, with the nerve sparing technique in 1980s. So, you know, Patrick Walsh is like, you know, the, the, the Michael Jordan of, of, of prostatectomies as it relates to nerve sparing techniques. So how was that experience for you?
1: I, I mean, being at Hopkins or operating with Pat Walsh, but I mean, both were fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I think the the experience of being at Hopkins was being with a large number of people that were highly motivated mm. to not accept the status quo and mm, try right. and improve the care of patients through science, but also, you know, clinical clinical care. Mm. And Pat Walsh, I think, was a fantastic role model in that regard. I mean, the way that he realized that the, Nerve the prostatectomy was suboptimal, the way he attacked, trying to figure out how to improve that, and then went about systematically improving it through the years. You know, really has improved the care of, of, of tens, hundreds, of thousands of patients. So it was a privilege Absolutely. operating with him.
0: That's uh, that's, uh, that's an amazing history, thirty two years roughly. So have I seen it all? Well, Every now and then I'm like, wow, this is different. Like for example, I saw a Gleason five. I've never seen it. Really? I didn't know that. 5. I
1: didn't know that existed anymore.
0: I saw a Gleason five. Exactly. Well, this was not. It was maybe ten years ago. Gleason okay. 5. And you know, I don't see a whole lot of Gleason tens, but I've seen a handful of those. Like Gleason nine is the highest, rate, Those kinds of things. So, and then all kinds of nuances. You. You've seen a lot. You've seen a lot of prostate cancer. A, do you feel? And this is why that's important. I, I think that while I tr- I try to be evidence based with my lifestyle approach, very difficult because it's not like what were the randomized trials. Some you wrote a paper we're going to talk about later on lifestyle, or you were involved in it. You know, but I think that most people should want to know my opinion also, not just what the evidence shows, because. I've seen so many same with you. Like, I want to know, Hey, I, I know you're going to tell me some studies if I'm your patient and you're going to say, well, the radiation, the percentage of you know, recurrence is this versus prostatectomy. Yeah. All right. Dr. Kuybel, what's your, what's your opinion? It's okay. It's okay. I won't hold you to it. So what, so what are those kinds of experiences that you've had? Do you share those kinds of opinions with your patients and yeah. what have you seen that's different that you, that's really um, unusual in the space of prostate cancer?
1: Well, I'll give you something that I don't think is unusual, but sort of talks about the art of medicine you're just sort mm-hmm. of discussing. I mean, yeah. MRI has profoundly changed how we identify who has clinically significant prostate cancer, By mm-hmm. that we define as Gleason 7 and above uh, loosely, doing a much better job of identifying people who need treatment and then sparing people who don't need treatment, maybe not just even the treatment, but even the diagnosis, which is a huge win. Mm-hmm. But as a sidelight of that... We're seeing patients that have very low volume Gleason, you know, eight prostate cancer. So I saw a guy today, had an abnormality on an MRI with a PSA that really wasn't that high. It was about three and a half. They went ahead, this wasn't me, an outside urologist, got an MRI, saw a small lesion, about nine millimeters in size, and they put a needle in it and came back with six millimeters of Gleason, three millimeters, excuse me, of Gleason pattern eight, four plus four. And everything four. else was, all the other cores were negative? All the other cores were negative. So he was labeled as being high-risk prostate cancer. Hmm. And I spent my time talking to him, trying Hmm. to explain to him that I really didn't think, like, yes, according to a nomogram, according to everything we Hmm. have, he fits the definition of high-risk prostate cancer because he has Gleason pattern eight. But if you gave him a little more cancer, so instead of having three millimeters of four, you gave him seven millimeters, and all the extra millimeters were Gleason pattern six or three, three. All of a sudden, he'd have three plus four and he'd have, you know, favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. He'd have more cancer, yet now he would have favorable intermediate instead of high risk. And I was trying to explain to him that, that, you know, we have, that's the art of medicine. That's the art Mm -hmm. of surgery. That's the Mm -hmm. art of diagnosis saying... I'm not sure you need hormone therapy before you get radiation. I don't think you, I think you have to always worry about recurrence, but I think you have very curable curable disease. We're not talking about a 50% cure rate. We're talking about north of an 80 or 90% cure And uh, the patient had trouble understanding that because, you know, in an evidence-based world, it's a eight,
0: world, period it's and story, a
1: 8, yep. Well, is, well,
0: today, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay.
1: I was going to talk about, and we were talking a lot about bladder cancer. I know we're talking more about kidney, prostate cancer than bladder cancer, but one of our residents fellows did a, an amazing study looking at you know neoadjuvant versus adjuvant chemotherapy for for bladder cancer. And what was interesting about it is there was a strong rationale as the result of his his, his paper for adjuvant and not neoadjuvant. But the level one evidence is for neoadjuvant, not adjuvant. Can you
0: explain the difference briefly for uh, the audience? Oh,
1: yeah. I'm sorry. So neoadjuvant would mean giving the chemotherapy for bladder cancer before you remove the the bladder. Mm -hmm. Adjuvant would mean uh, giving it after. Mm -hmm. The advantage of giving it before is that patients actually receive it. Patients are feeling pretty good. They haven't had the the trauma of surgery, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're able to tolerate the chemotherapy. And there is good level one evidence that it improves patient's life expectancy. The benefit of adjuvant is not everybody is going to benefit from the chemotherapy. And if you remove the bladder, you can see how aggressive the cancer is, have an understanding of how aggressive the disease is, and then only give the patients who are going to benefit from the Mm. chemotherapy, the chemotherapy. The problem is, is that the majority of patients, not the majority, close to the majority of patients, just are never going to get the chemotherapy because they're still recovering from the surgery. They have a Mm. complication that prevents them from getting it. They've just gone through huge surgery, and they're not really interested in getting additional therapy. And the result is that we've never succeeded in doing the getting the level one evidence. We've never succeeded in having the randomized trials that shown that it works. And and more to the point, the patients ru- routinely refuse it slash can't tolerate it, which sort of goes together. I mean, if mm. the patient's exhausted and has had a complication, mm. I don't think they're refusing it. They're just saying my body can only take so much.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: So that's an example of where you know the the art of medicine might be for certain patients to restrict it to adjuvant chemotherapy. Whereas if you're just going to stick by the rule book, everybody should get neoadjuvant.
0: And those those are guidelines. I tell patients, these are right. guidelines. They guide uh, us and your surgeon, urologist, and so forth. Back to that patient with the Gleason 8, I have yeah. a, I'm just curious, is it worthwhile to send that, and I don't know if you did this, that bio, that tissue to another lab for a second opinion on that pathology? <laughs>
1: Well, I would say if you're, if you're a urologist or, or, or a radiation oncologist or even medical oncologist is out in the community, I would say the answer to that is definitely yes. But mm-hmm. but at our institution, pretty much everybody that comes in gets a second read. Mm-hmm. If it, it happens two different ways. External slides are always reread if we're going to treat the patient. Mm-hmm. And that's because of some bad experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, probably 30 or 40 years ago where we, we realized the diagnosis was a little off. We said we need, we need to make sure we know what's going on. And then internally, if there are any questions, you know, the slides are re-reviewed by, by a geopathologist. pathologist. So the second pretty much opinion, everything is consensus.
0: Is the second opinion within the same
1: lab? At our institution? Yeah, yeah, Essentially, yes. I mean, I, I belong to a quote-unquote institution that has seven or eight different hospitals. And yeah. so they all have the same pathology department now. Yeah. But in truth, they, they are still While they're integrated and they have a common reporting system, uh, the pathologists are still local. So There's a lot of sharing of things back and forth if there's any question of what's going on. So that that, that pure Gleason 8, that gets shown to several different pathologists before it's reported. And
0: my other question is, I don't know if you know this because I don't, you know, I I would love to have a pathologist uh, that looks at only prostate cancer tissue or prostate tissue. When they go for the second opinion, do they know already the Gleason score that the first pathologist scored it?
1: You know, I think that's a really interesting question. I think the answer is yes, they do know what the other pathologists said. First of all, I think it's hard to, to you know, they don't want to be blinded. They want to know what they're looking it's, for. The right. slide's are already marked up that they get to highlight sure. certain areas. Yeah. Right. But also, it's actually important for the care because we'll often see patients sure. where they, they our pathologists will say explicitly in the report, I can't find the pattern four that was reported. Hmm. Or... Yeah. I found something that I think is pattern four, but I think it's crush artifact. I don't think it's actually four. And they will report all those things. If they see something that disagrees with the outside pathologist, they'll tell us, which I think is incredibly useful, particularly in communicating with the patient. They say, why is there a difference here? And you're able to say, well, this is what our pathologist saw that the other pathologist did.
0: Is that patient a candidate? For maybe what can sound like a silly question. Is he a candidate for active surveillance?
1: So, I don't think I would put somebody with pure eight on active surveillance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I did, when I was talking to this patient, I did talk about the, the Protect trial, uh, mm-hmm. which in which 75% of them roughly had Gleason pattern six. There were mm-hmm. about a little less than 25% that had Gleason pattern seven. And there were actually 2% that had Gleason eight and, and above. Mm-hmm. And I've always been struck by, because part of that trial had an active management arm. So, you had mm-hmm. to have somebody say, look, I'm happy with treating this patient, and I'm happy with not treating this patient, mm. and and I can't believe that somebody that high volume glycanate somebody would say, look, I'm not going to treat you, okay? Yeah. yeah, But I do believe that that you could have somebody that had very low volume glycanate like this, and the patient said, look, I'm, I, you know, somebody really believes that, that maybe treatment yeah. doesn't work. I believe yeah. treatment works, but yeah, they might believe and they say, look. Let's go ahead and maybe you want to be involved in that trial. And I would suspect that's the 2% of high risk patients that were involved mm. in that trial, exactly mm. like this guy. We, we also, t- I thought you were going to ask me a different question. I thought you were going to ask me about focal ablation. Oh. And uh, well, I was going to ask you,
0: I, I was going to ask you what uh, treatment did he choose and is he a candidate for focal ablation? So,
1: yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> so he, he, he actually chose surgery. Uh-huh. Okay. But I, I actually, I'm not a huge fan of focal ablation, mostly because I think the data out there is still a little weak. But I think it is the future of our field. I think it's yeah. really an imaging question. Yeah, we need to understand where the cancer is before we can focally ablate it, and then it's a targeting question: can we actually take it out? And so, right now, so
0: both- the energy is good enough. Whatever the energy source is, whether it's cold, whether it's ultrasound, you think the energy is good enough? I think
1: energy is. I don't. I think the energy is good. Could we improve on the energy? Yeah obviously we can always improve on the energy Hmm. but i think most of the recurrences from focal ablation are because they missed the tumor or the tumor was larger than they suspected Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so then the next question is is really can it more aggressive tumors are they going to respond to this energy as well as low risk tumors i don't think we fully know the answer to that but intellectually i don't understand why that wouldn't be there would be any difference i mean freezing kills things heat kills things i i I don't know whether why high-grade disease would respond differently so, in somebody like this that had a very small, let's imagine we're, we're using it mostly in patients that have three plus four, okay? Because we think those are patients that are at risk and patients that deserve some form of treatment, and that a very small volume disease. So, this patient, as I said, if he had a little more cancer Gleason pattern, you know, three, you know, then I would be saying, hey, maybe focal therapy will work. So,
2: yeah.
1: I, have, you know, I'm trying to re- get that around that in my own mind. So I, right now, when he discussed it with me, he actually came citing the cold data. I mean, our patients come in very educated sometimes. Yeah, they do. And he said, I don't think this is actually a good idea. And I actually agree with him in 2023. In 2026 or 2028, you know, the field will have figured this out. And, and then we may be treating patients with these low. It's more going to be about the volume of disease than the grade, in my opinion.
0: So I had—I uh, don't know if you know—Steve Sianti. He's in Florida. He does only vocal. I'm going to have Arvin George on, hopefully soon. Now he's at Hopkins. I had—I had Jim Wysock from our department talk about cryo, and I yeah. had Dr. Lapour, uh, Herb Laporte. and I spoke a little bit. Um, that's not published yet. The reason I'm saying that is because I always—I always raise the question: Does the Gleason score matter? In other yeah. words, is in cancer, cancer. So all things being equal, PSMA is this, you know, negative. Everything shows that it's encapsulated. Everything pretty much shows that what's there is there. Who cares if it's a Gleason ten or a Gleason six? Isn't a Glee and shouldn't it just take care of everything? So far, I don't know about Arvind George. I'll ask him that question when I have him on. They said, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's 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 right. Cancer is cancer. If there's nothing else anywhere else. Now the. That's and, and now with the technology. So in the past, we used to think, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. If it's at least a nine, I'm concerned that there might be something else at least on the outside outside of the capsule. Right. But now with the uh, technology and the imaging that we have to um, make that assessment, which is better, not perfect, better. They say, yeah, uh, just treat it with focal. So rather
1: that's, than that's waiting for the- those
0: for those guys, rather than waiting, <laughs> they're like, yeah, we could do that right now.
1: Well, I think I think the issue is you have to separate. The grade predicting whether the patient's going to fail therapy, any therapy. They're going to develop metastatic disease. It's incurable cancer. And how grade predicts that from how grade would influence whether a focal ablation would take care of the local tumor. Grade and stage will still matter into whether the patient is successfully treated or not Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. patients will fail no matter what the treatment is. Uh, But I would guess if we're just looking at the local control, whether we actually kill the cancer cells, Mm -hmm. it probably doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. probably notice i said probably yeah yeah sure i think sure. we'll we'll find out you
0: yeah. know now how how many have you done and and and, and, and prostatectomies and, and say the truth I, I hear all these numbers from all these guys yeah. I'm like come on i know how long you've been in practice but 32 years you've done how many prostatectomies I,
1: I lost count a while ago, over 5000. I do about 200. I do about 200 a year.
0: Yeah, that's Uh, right. And when I
1: hear people that say I did 1000 a year, I I can't understand how that would be possible, because that would mean you do Three a day, every day, including Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> exactly. uh, but exactly. I, it's enough time. I, I pride myself on treating the patient, not yeah. not doing the surgery. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to work with a team that feels the same way. Okay. So when patients come in and see me, I recommend radiation. I recommend doing nothing. I recommend active surveillance, and I recommend surgery. So I saw, I think, six new patients today, and I recommended surgery in two of them. Mm-hmm. And in the others, I said, you don't, you don't, you don't need surgery or you're not the right candidate for surgery. And, uh, you know, I, I work with Anthony D'Amico. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Paul Nguyen. Uh, and these are uh, radiation oncologists who view the world the same way as I do. That is where I always say we're contractors. I'm not a hammer and I'm not a carpenter. I'm a contractor. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to call the electrician in to do the job right. And, and you need a good electrician if you're going to be a contractor. And I'm fortunate to work with the best.
0: You, you actually do. And I think that I really try to have conversations with my guests that where I'm assuming that the listener do not have the luxury of having institutions like your institution mm-hmm. at Harvard, Brigham Young, Brigham Young at Harvard <laughs> and we'll NYU bring them and,
1: women. and even Brigham women, bring women. thank country.
0: you. That's right. <laughs> That's
1: right. <laughs> Wrong religion, too. The skiing is skiing's a little better in Utah. <laughs>
0: So, you know, I you know, these these areas are bubbles and I and almost everyone listening just are not they don't have the luxury to to have all those options, which brings me to my next question. And, you know, all you got all the high level people and I am I'm a little partial to academic institutions, maybe because I'm in one and i see what happens in the day to day and there's grand rounds and you discuss cases and you can really determine what's best for patients objectively the other thing is that patients are concerned that that everything is a business yeah that that the surgeon you know if, you know if you have a hammer everything looks like a nail right and what i say to that is like there there is some truth to that in many places in high end places i was like, like i i refer patients to you yeah, and they, they they bring that up. Well, he's a surgeon. Is he going to want to do surgery? I said, listen, Doctor Kaibel has many people scheduled already. He doesn't need a you know another. He will he will literally look at your case and try to figure you know, figure out what's best for you. Same thing with people in our institute and wherever yeah. else. So, what's your response to that notion? Where look, he's a surgeon. Of course, he's going to want to do surgery. You know, and the radiation oncologist is going to want to do radiation. Clearly, you give him options. And, and by the way, part of what I say is, A, they should be biased. B, they should be like, yeah, this is, I'm the best in this. You want that. Li- yeah, I am, right? I am, I'm really good at this. I've done it so many mm. times. So you want that little gravitas because you're going to open me up and take my prostate away. And yeah. bias, I said, look, I, I'm biased. I believe wholeheartedly in lifestyle medicine. I believe yeah. that if you do this, it creates a micro environment that's hostile to cancer cells. So it's no longer to, for example, you know, I used to window dress a little bit. Well, you know, do this lifestyle stuff, because if it doesn't do anything to the cancer, it reduces your risk of a heart attack. If it doesn't. And now I can say with some level, some level of authority, but based on the research that's available, including the research, yeah. one that you're involved in. I said, look, this creates a micro environment that's hostile to cancer and there's a mechanism to it. So I'm biased towards that. What do you say to people with, you know, people that think along those lines, like, yeah, every, every surgeon just wants to do surgery?
1: Well, there was so much to unpack there. I'm not even sure where to start. Uh, <laughs> I, I kept rambling. So the I'm thing sorry you, I, I sort of told you what my spiel was already. Exactly. Is, you did. The you patient, did, did. I say they need surgery. So it, let's say I say they need surgery. What I say to them is I say, you have no way of knowing what I say to everybody else. Hmm. But trust me, I don't recommend surgery for everybody. Yeah. And yeah. I tell them, uh, and I tell them the reason, uh, I, and I tell them, why I think they are a good candidate for surgery. And frequently, I'm with a, a fellow or a a, a, a a resident and able to turn to that individual and say to that individual, look, I, I haven't recommended surgery for everybody today. And the, the, they smile knowingly, knowing that I haven't. I, I think the the patients who see me recommend active surveillance and radiation, and I do, those are easier and it makes it a lot easier when mm-hmm. then they see the radiation oncologist when I recommended radiation and they recommended radiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- the same is true when I see a patient I recommend surgery and then they go see the, r- the radiation oncologist who recommend surgery as well. Mm-hmm. Now there's always a little bit of overlap between the radiation mm-hmm. oncologists and the mm-hmm. urologist uh, and, and, and on those cases I actually am very honest with the patient. I say look, I said I think that the radiation oncologist maybe they're going to tell you the same stuff and They're just going to be a little more tilted towards towards radiation than I am, and that doesn't mean they're wrong. And usually, in those cases, they either they have really you know some favorable disease qualities, which means they're probably going to be cured either way. And I say that mm-hmm. to them. I say, look, you know, you you're, you got two good choices here, not two bad choices. We're not talking about pancreatic cancer; we're talking about prostate cancer, and, and odds are you're going to be cured either way. This is why I think surgery is better. But listen to what, you know, listen to what the radiation oncologist says, because they're very mm-hmm. smart, very mm-hmm. thoughtful, and very caring. And, mm-hmm. and the last piece of this, studies have shown over and over again that patients that are exposed to multidisciplinary care actually do better. Yep. And part of it, I think, is they get the, the better treatment. And yep. part of it, which is what we're talking about earlier, is that mindfulness. You know, they, they feel like they've explored everything. So they mm-hmm. feel like they go in like they've made the best choice for them. Yeah. And I think going into something with a little more certainty, a little more knowledge, pays dividends psychologically and because psychologically, physically as well.
0: Yeah, I have a whole process with patients as to, look, this is how you make a decision. And we, because sometimes they see me, everybody sees me for the holistic and integrative component lifestyle. They also see me like, look, what would... like second opinion. How do I come yeah. up with a decision? I've heard four things that I can do. How do I come up with a decision? And I have a process with the mindfulness. And we were talking about meditation earlier. Meditate, uh, you know, once you get, you get the data, get the pros and cons, look at the yeah. data, look at the data again, close everything, go a quiet space and see what your gut will tell you. How scientific is that? Listen to your gut.
1: <laughs> well, I say, I say something old. There patients that have trouble making up their mind. I say decide on something. Yeah. Okay. And then see how it sits for a week. And if you made the wrong decision, you won't be happy. If you've made the right decision, you'll be happy. That's right. Just, you know, make it, put it aside, move on, see how you feel about it. It'll keep keep you up at night if you've made the wrong decision. If you made the right one, you'll sleep soundly.
0: 100%. 100%. I agree with that. Well, let's talk about um, a couple of things that I've looked at that as I looked you up. So I'm going to have Scott Egner on and Scott, I follow his tweets and Scott yeah. is big into he's written on uh, published on we sh- the fact that we, well, his fact, uh, and many people agree with him that we should not call Gleason six prostate cancer cancer, maybe like a precancer or something like that. And then yeah. I came across your paper. And Hugh and Dr. Epstein uh, seem to disagree with that, and I'm like, "Whoa! I love that—that that, yeah. the fact that they're disagreeing." So let's see. So the conclusion of this paper, very briefly, is that there's strong support for retaining the carcinoma designation for a Gleason grade one prostate cancer mor- uh, morphology, and. Molecularly, and for clarity of reports and follow up of patients. And there's a little bit more than that. But then, of course, it says, you know, such diagnoses have weakened over time with changes in grading terminology and greater acceptance of active surveillance. Let me give you my two cents very quickly on how I feel about that. My two cents are the following In my world, here I am asking patients to practice mindfulness, and that's a whole thing. Eat like this. Less like that. Exercise with moderate intensity to high intensity for three to six hours a week. Let's figure out how you can sleep better. Here's a couple of nutraceutical supplements that may help. It's a lot. Guys are not doing that without a cancer diagnosis or something, right? So from my world, a I have a podcast episode, just me talking, why I love Gleason 6 prostate cancer. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, that 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 puts the the they they get motivated, put the fear of God in them, and they're like, I'll do whatever. And these patients do amazing. They lower the risk of everything else. They're consistent, they're compliant, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that has, you know, so from a morphological reason, from a pathological reason, why is it that you think that a Gleason six prostate cancer is cancer and should be called exactly that?
1: Well, let's, to to address that, let's face it: the status quo is that it's cancer. So more he has to make the case about why it should change. Right. Sure. And his rationale for the change is rooted in things that we really do have a problem with, which is that mm-hmm. we're overtreating patients who have Gleason pattern six. Mm-hmm. Majority of patients, which is true, leasing, or was true, it still is true. Yeah. Okay. It really in the United States more than the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And he and and then there's also you know it's interesting that you're talking about the psychological benefit of of mindfulness. I, I think there is an impact on people who suddenly become a cancer survivor. They go from being a healthy state to an unhealthy state just because of a diagnosis. And I also agree with him that that's a problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I think the problem with the change in the, can, in, uh, the diagnosis to a can, from a cancer to a non-cancer diagnosis is, is several fold. The first one, which Jonathan Epstein sort of addressed, and hopefully I won't get wrong, uh, is basically... Gleason 6 looks like cancer. It has a molecular signature of cancer. From a pathologic standpoint, it's cancer, right? It's a pathologic diagnosis. You can't change that, okay? I summed up really what he wrote several pages on in just a few sentences. <laughs> you sure that, did. That's, really what it, that's really what it boils down to as a urologist. He also was felt very strongly about how are you going to deal with things where it's a Gleason pattern 4 plus 3, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. the 3 component is only cancer when it's in line with a Gleason pattern 4. How much mm-hmm. 4 do you need in order for the 3 to be important? Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: The, and, and molecularly, I know I sort of hinted at this, but molecularly there are Gleason pattern 6s that have a very aggressive signature molecularly. We know that from all these genomic tests. My argument, which is much more clinically based, is GRADE is only one of the things that we consider as to whether someone should be treated or not. You know, Scott points out that patients that have had radical prostatectomies that truly have Gleason Pattern 6 have never been shown to die of prostate cancer. I find the word never is kind of a strong word, but he's About right. 1%, that it's extremely, maybe. extremely rare. Yeah, About extremely, 1% extremely of Gleason
0: 6s can develop it, a, uh, it a might be even less.
1: Disease. It might be even less than that. I think Jonathan Epstein's paper had like 6,000 patients in it, of which something like 14 died of prostate cancer, all of which were found to have Gleason pattern 4 on them when they were re-examined. But... Oh, that's close We're to the We're not zero. talking <laughs> about patients where we've removed their prostate. We're yeah, talking right. about people that have biopsies, right. and a significant percentage of patients that have Gleason pattern six, three plus three. When you repeat the biopsy, are found to have Gleason pattern four, and therefore these patients are going to have to be followed in an identical manner to what we follow patients right now with active surveillance. We already have a problem which you alluded to between 40 and 60% of patients that are put on active surveillance fail to show up for their for their follow up. I even have a term for it. I call it inactive surveillance. And that's particularly a problem in underrepresented minorities. 42 uh, so
0: 40 what percent?
1: Forty to sixty. It's forty percent in, in in Caucasian or white patients. In African American or black patients, it's it's closer to sixty percent.
0: And that's and, when you say that you mean they don't come they don't come for their follow up at all, they just, or they don't they come just, for they, their second biopsy.
1: They they don't follow up. It's it, you know it's seer data, so it doesn't really have the granularity we would all yeah. like. But right. let's just basically say they don't follow up optimally. Mm-hmm. And I am concerned that not only won't the patient won't show up now, they're told they don't have cancer, so they won't follow up. And now their insurance company might say, you don't have cancer. Why are we paying for follow-up? And yeah, for someone who has optimal health care insurance, I don't think that's really a big deal. You alluded to the second, you know, if you don't have cancer, are you going to be able to get a second read on that slide? I don't know whether you're going to be able to get a second read on that slide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all these things together mean that we're going to have to follow the patients exactly the same way, but it'll probably be harder to follow so why do we want to take a disease? I don't know if we want to call it a disease, a diagnosis that right now we have a good understanding of how to follow safely, identify the 20 to 30% of patients who eventually need treatment and 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 somehow make it harder for that to happen. And I alluded to one thing that I, I missed, missed. Gleason pattern is only one of the things that we use to decide whether someone should be treated or not. So if I see someone who say is you know, African American, and they have three family members who died of prostate cancer, and they have Gleason pattern six. Am I gonna, I'm, I, I'm gonna call that not cancer and not treat them? I see someone who's BRCA two positive, and they have Gleason pattern six, which admittedly is rare, but it happens. Am I gonna just ignore that and say no, we're not going to treat that? No, I'm worried about that patient. So, do you guys you know, do genetic testing on everyone? No. No, we don't. We do, we do it on patients who have high-risk prostate cancer. But, but we are seeing patients that have family members that are BRCA2 positive. But, you know, their, their sister, you know, underwent bilateral mastectomies because they were BRCA2 positive because their mother died of breast cancer. And they get tested and they're found to be BRCA2, BRCA2 positive. And I think that patient it needs to be followed extremely closely, like, like they have prostate cancer, like they're on, under active surveillance. Even though yeah. I can't find the cancer yet, I know it's going to occur. And if it doesn't, it's a win. I'd rather they followed them and it wasn't found than ignored it and, and, and then missed something. We had a mutual. So does, that, does that answer your question? Hey, are, you ready to go after, are you ready to go after Scott when he's on your show?
0: Well, I, I wrote notes. I, I'm ready to ask the, the, the hard question. I'm not Wolf Blitzer. over oh, we can see. I'm going to ask yeah.
1: hard questions. <laughs> hard questions. No, I like that. You can have me sneak on and just whisper in your ear what you should be asking. It. Exactly. Yeah, I'll have you on my phone. I'll have an AirPod in. <laughs> I want to say, though, I think Scott is an incredibly clear thinker about this. He yeah. spent an awful lot of time mm-hmm. thinking about it. He does. And I think that people need to address the underlying issues that are leading to this need. I so I'm against renaming it but he's right in that we're overtreating patients and yes, a an sure. lot of these patients really don't they don't benefit from the diagnosis or the treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. How often do you order these genomic tests like Oncotype DX or in a situation like that? The reason I ask, I, I, I asked for, I, we have a mutual patient, you do a prostatectomy. I said, Should we do a decipher? And I didn't have a good answer why I wanted to do a decipher, other than Ooh. for me, more information is always better. I don't, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I tell patients, ignorance is not bliss ever. So, and, and the opposite is true in my head as my opinion. More information is better. I want to know as much about this as possible so we can make a decision. So, and you said, no, we don't need to do that. We we had the pathology report. It says what it says, and we don't need to do that. From a prostate biopsy tissue perspective, Gleason 6, and you want to make sure, would you order such a test?
1: Not not in very low-risk prostate cancer. I'd, I'd order it in somebody that said, I had high volume, Gleason 6. Let's imagine the patient that Six out of six cores, each with like 60%, 70% of the core on one side. I'd, I'd get a cipher on that But mm-hmm. if they wanted active surveillance. Uh, mm-hmm. I might get it on somebody who wanted treatment that had low-risk prostate cancer. The guy who has, say, three cores positive, each about 40%, they're like, I want my prostate out i found over time it's hard to dissuade somebody, but if they're persuadable, I might get the Decipher or Polaris or Oncotype in order to push them the other way towards no treatment. And then the other group are patients that have low volume Gleason 3 plus 4. So I saw a guy today, he had got uh, three random cores that were at like 5% of a core and one targeted core that was like 20, it was 10% of a core and 1% had, had. had so 10% of the 10% had Gleason Pattern 4. And the guy was like, I have Gleason 7, you know, I want to be treated. And I said, no, yeah. no, 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 let's, that's 1% of your core at Gleason Pattern 4, Gleason Pattern 4. Let's get to Cypher, see what it shows. And if it looks like low risk disease, then then maybe we can you with active surveillance. Uh, I, I'm a big, but I, I always tell people only order tasks. Like you said, information is power, which I totally agree with. But I also believe that you don't ask questions unless you're going to respect the answer. So yeah. if you're going to do active surveillance, no matter right. what, don't right. muddy the waters by getting a decipher test or or Polaris or Oncotype, because <laughs> I think they all work similarly. Yeah. I don't want to be seen as endorsing one or the other. Uh, yeah. yeah. The right. If because I think they all work. I think they're all good. Yeah. The and I, I've seen too many times you get all the tests and it, this hasn't happened in a number of years. But I have patients who up they've had two MRIs, they've had a decipher, a Polaris, an Alcotype. And by by the way, sometimes they give different readouts. Okay? They don't always give the same right, that's
0: readout. That happened to me. Okay. And right. then it's more confusing, right? Where the right. the results right. are, one is saying, "Yeah, there's a higher risk." the so one is saying, "There's no risk." Right? And it's like, what do you do with that information?
1: Right. And, and then and then they've sequenced. This hasn't also happened in a while. They sequence their own genome, and yeah. they come in and they're like, "What should I do?" And I'm like, "This is too much information. I don't yeah. really know what it all means." And they're like, "Who does?" And I said, "I think I'm about as good as you're going to get." You know, <laughs> I and I, I can recommend some other people, but I don't think they're going to be better yeah. than me. I think they're going to give. They're going to be just as Either informed or as confused as, as I am by yeah, this right. deluge of information. So keep it simple. Choose tests that work for you that you understand and just order one or two that actually help. Like I, I like ordering, you know, I like an MRI. An MRI really helps me. Mm-hmm. It really does. Not not only around the diagnosis, but then around the management strategy. Yeah. And I think about it like a biomarker. And then I'll usually order one serum or urine based test.
3: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm
1: it sounds like it sounds like we're in complete agreement about this.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I think my approach has failed me infrequently. Yeah. For example, if they if they do a decipher that says, look, it shows that you might have something more aggressive or the risk of metastasis yeah. is something significant with a Gleason 7, the approach is, this is what it is. Now, everybody's personality type is different. I have to, right? So the way I, I do with patients is, this is the evidence, but I also look at the human and the bias yeah. and uh, emotions. And uh, I don't ignore that. I yeah. include it into the mix because we're dealing with humans. We're not dealing with, with rats in, a, in right. a lab. And sometimes the results are a little bit higher. So well, what we do here is we, we, now you're incentivized to keep a, come for your PSAs. Don't get lost. Yeah. Right, you, you're going to yeah. come for your piece. Once again, the lifestyle component that I know because yeah. I, I do it, and if it's not easy for me, it's not easy for you. They're more more compliant and more more consistent with it. So
1: you said you said something I thought that was really important. You right. said that, you know the lifestyle changes have been shown to decrease patients' risk of like cardiovascular mortality, and I say that to patients all the time. Yeah. I say, look, this is a wake up call. And if you go on yeah. a heart-healthy diet, that's probably going to be very good for your prostate cancer, but it's certainly going to be good for your heart. And you are much more likely to die of a heart attack if you have lower prostate cancer than to die of prostate cancer. Uh,
0: or, or some and people it, that have the APOE genes and for, for Alzheimer's, I said, look, here's yeah. the evidence. So this is going to help you with that. This is going to help you with right. so many things. Quality of life, just living better and enjoying your time with your family and friends because you yeah. just feel better. Yeah. Totally that, agree. That's, um, Yeah. Speaking of lifestyle, so in 2022, you were one of many authors. This was, I mean, this was an excellent study in the European uh, Journal of Urology. And the conclusion is this. Our findings suggest that genetic predispositions for prostate cancer is not deterministic for poor cancer uh, outcome. Maintaining a healthy lifestyle may provide a way to offset genetic risk. Of lethal prostate cancer. In other words, you have a genetic risk of dying from prostate cancer and yeah. certain lifestyle modalities. We can go over those, can reduce the risk of you dying from prostate cancer. When I look at literature, Adam, right, and says, well, if you have lycopene, it reduces your risk of getting, if you take lycopene, it reduces your risk of, of get, getting prostate cancer. I don't care about that because. Anybody you know if you have a prostate, you live long, enough, you're going to get prostate cancer. I care about the aggressive type. I care about not dying from pro that's the literature that I pay attention as it relates to lifestyle. How will people reduce the risk but certainly not die from it if they get it? This was great tell me yeah. and 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 here's the thing we for the first time we spoke and when I had a refer referral for you and again you're Dr. Keibel, you're known in the field. You are the chairman of this amazing and academic institution. And I'm like, wow, okay. And you're like, "Um, Gio, uh, we won't be able to, you know, let me, let me tell you the the story about the patient. um, And I have to go because I'm soon going to get an airplane. So where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to go with my wife and I'm going to meditate and do some like health retreat. I said, oh, that's my language. And you are going, to, you are you are going to go to a health retreat. So, a, what are your lifestyle practices as a busy surgeon, as a busy administrator? You're the chair of a department. You have a family. What are your lifestyle practices to keep yourself healthy and well? And then we can talk about the study with regards to lowering risk of aggressive and lethal prostate cancer.
1: So don't don't give me too much credit about going and meditating and stuff like that. So my, my my wife wanted to do this and one of the ways that I found that I keep myself sane is doing a little bit of what my wife asked me for. Uh, there are great studies out there that've showed that married men live less live longer than unmarried men. That's right. And so I which I actually think are true. And And have uh, more money than
0: than men who are divorced and things like that. Well, uh, well, they keep their money. I'm not
1: going to get into that. I'm just saying there's a common sense attitude that many women have that men sort of lack. And and I found that uh, doing what she tells me to do is uh, probably a little more successful. But but part of that is if you're going to do something like that, you got to be all in. Like mm-hmm. in other words, you're not gonna go there and, and, and spend the whole time, you know, complaining about it. You're gonna go and you're gonna see what it's like and, and Where's the like
0: thighs? Oh, this is BS. Right. Wait a minute, what you asked me to do? Right. This is BS. I'm not doing that. No, Where's I the thighs behind it? You're not doing that.
1: I didn't I didn't say that. And it wasn't quite as holistic as I did sound bathing, we did a lot of yoga, we did some meditation, but mostly I just enjoyed hiking in the woods. Mm-hmm. I think there's a which lot of Which is really uh, good
0: too, and meditative writing. and everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. they call it forest bathing. There's actually a term for it, which mm-hmm. I I think it's sort of, it's just a hike. I like that. But yeah. when you're in the woods and you're, you're just listening to the birds and it, it distracts you and you're not concentrating, it wipes your mind a little bit, which I think yeah. is really helpful. In general, my, my strategy is I, I try and exercise. So I run a lot. I How try often? and probably about three or four times a week. I run about okay. 20 miles a week. I'm training oh, nice. for a half marathon. So on Saturday, I ran 10 mi- I ran eight miles. Okay. And So uh, having I, that
0: carrot helps you tr- like keep up with it? So having that oh, carrot yeah, yeah, yeah. of... Right. I need a care. like a train, you know, marathon or this race or that race that keeps you going.
1: So one of my flaws is that life is a competition. So I'm not competing with other people. I'm competing with myself. So I need sure. something to go for. Otherwise I ice. just won't do it. Otherwise I'll eat ice cream instead of exercise. <laughs> I love ice cream. Are you
0: trying to get a certain time in or something or. or oh, not that, those or... days,
1: those days are over. I, I was, over. I was a very fast runner when I, for my age, when I was younger. Uh, and you know, now Pete every race is, I run the, is a, is a big time runner. I know, but I'm, I was probably faster than in my, in my peak. Oh, I, I, ran, wow. I ran the, I ran the Boston Marathon in just under, over three hours. Whoa, I when, how long ago? Well I know, it was probably about eight years ago. Wow, and then my not fastest ha- my half fastest half marathon was a little over an hour and twenty minutes, which, if you do the math, is really fast.
0: I've I've ran uh, half marathons, and that is super fast. Yeah.
1: So so again, that's the competition, which I'm not sure is totally healthy. Uh, okay. We have a house in Maine. You brought up Peter mm-hmm. Carroll. He's got he's got a place that he gets away to. Uh, I kind of mm-hmm. learned from him and a couple of other people like Martin Gleave, mm-hmm. and we ended up buying a place where 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 it, the name of it is Hana, which is mm-hmm. uh, my wife's family is from uh, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And that means work is done and uh, I like that the boat the boat that's there is called ona which stands for it's short for out of hospital not available and when I go up there which any anybody who's a physician knows is what you dial your beeper or two when you're not available out of hospital not available <laughs> and and as my wife says it's cheaper than therapy that's so right. I, I like that's that. good for me. That's good yeah. for me. So that, that's my strategy. Does it work so you, perfectly? And, and plus ice no. cream.
0: That's part of your lifestyle. Plus ice cream. Uh, yeah.
1: oh, and, and I love spending time with my kids. I mean, anybody yeah. who's a parent shares that with me. I mean, that, that even goes without saying. My kids can get me to do pretty much anything they want as long as it's legal. And, <laughs> and, and I just, it, it, uh, it, it, it brings so much joy to my life. And I'm, I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. My kids are doing well. And, and uh, How many kids do you have? I, I wish everybody. I got three. I got mm-hmm. three.
0: And they're all adults now, I assume?
1: Yeah, yeah. The youngest is 22. So out of the house, living on their own, watching out for themselves. Even the successful.
0: 22-year-old is living on their own?
1: Well, he actually is in our home right now, but he's in the military. So he's going to be deployed to Fort Moore. That was Fort Benning. Now it's Fort Moore in Georgia in just a few months. But he's got a little time to kill. So he's mm-hmm. playing video games and hanging yep. out in our house, which, wow. is, which is wonderful. I wish yeah. he could stay. If, if he... If he had to stay here longer, I wouldn't like it. But the mm-hmm. fact that he's choosing to spend some time with us before he's deployed, I absolutely love.
0: <laughs> enjoy yeah. it, enjoy your time with him. That's great. And I love to hear family stories. I'm a big family man, three kids, eldest 19, the youngest 11. Wow. And I really like spending time with them. So I'm where so you enjoy, were maybe 10 en- years ago.
1: Enjoy them because they grow up. And yeah, it's uh, a different relationship, spend- hopefully. Right. Well, the relationship matures, but then they don't have to spend time with you. They they acquire boyfriends, girlfriends, yeah. lives that don't involve you. Your goal in life is to make yourself obsolete. When it happens, it, it kind of hurts a little bit. What do you mean <laughs> you don't need to spend time with me? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, that's what you trained them to do. Right. That's uh, what you want them to do, right? <laughs> Look, uh, so we're talking, talking about, about family. Do you want to talk about that study? Uh, yeah. And by the way, time?
0: family, I think is lifestyle. But yeah, let's talk about that study and... So beautifully tell you what it grew beautifully done, and and it was obviously I highlight that study everywhere because it's such, so, you know, such nicely that's so elegant.
1: So the person who deserves a lot of the credit for this is Anna Plim, who's the first author on that, and mm-hmm. Lorelei Mucci, who's a very talented mm-hmm. uh, epidemiologist at, at at the Chan School, Chan Harvard School of Public Health, mm-hmm. and they've done a study previously in the Physicians Health Study that showed that. Uh, Lethal prostate cancer was decreased in people that had, and you asked me this at the last second, so I got to get it right. It's people with lower BMI, people Mm -hmm. who exercise, people who eat tomatoes, people who eat fish, people who don't eat processed foods, Mm -hmm. and people who don't smoke. I think mm-hmm. I got all six. You did, and the and so did you say we, exercise um, regularly? Did you say that? Yeah, that I think it was exercise right. regularly. I don't remember yeah. the exact. I think it was it had a number of METs. METs is one of the ten, technical right. terms for exercise, and if you exceeded a certain t- exercise a number
0: intensity of and so forth, yeah, right.
1: So, and the reason they use those because that's what's available in the data set that predates yeah. So, as a separate study, as part of this very large study called Practical. Mm -hmm. Uh, which has got over 100,000 cases and uh, 100,000 controls worldwide that have prostate cancer. We've Mm -hmm. identified a way called a polygenic risk score, which identifies who's at increased risk for any cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So part of the thing that hinges on is if you're going to die of prostate cancer, you have to develop prostate cancer. So you're not at increased risk of developing aggressive prostate cancer if you have a high polygenic risk score by itself. But by definition, you're at higher risk mm-hmm. because you're not going to die of prostate cancer if you never develop it, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So the bright idea that Anna had was, why don't we go ahead and look at both together? So what she did is she went ahead and looked at the polygenic risk score and how it related to, so people who had the different polygenic risk scores, had low, intermediate, and high risk disease, and then looked at the lethality in those patient populations as it pertained to a healthy lifestyle. And what she found is if you were in the highest risk group, you benefited from the higher, from the the better, the the more healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. The flip side of the coin is meaning you're less likely to die of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're in the lower risk, you're not. And it was really focused on low body mass index, exercise, and not smoking. Now, the problem with that study, so I think it's a wonderful study, and I'm glad that you run around citing it. And I think it's really important for people who have low-risk prostate cancer or concerned about it to hear that. But it's hard to argue against not smoking and, and losing weight. and exercising regularly. I was on a Fox interview on the local local news station about this, and that's what they were insinuating. And I said, look, I'm a physician. I think everybody should not smoke. I think everybody should exercise. I think everybody should lose weight. It may not impact, if you're in the low-risk group, it may not impact Mm -hmm. your risk of dying of prostate cancer, but it certainly will impact your risk of dying of a heart attack, Mm -hmm. having a stroke, uh, leading a healthy, more mindful life because you're just more, you know, physically fit and able to do things. Hmm. Uh, but I do think it's an important message for people, particularly who have a strong family history of prostate cancer, uh, people who uh, have, as I said, low risk disease and are wor- are worried about progressing. Uh, that you know, you need to take care of yourself, and this is your opportunity to do it. Does yeah. that uh, does that help answer your question?
0: A hundred percent. And and look, obviously this is an op- more of an observational study, but there's been randomized trial and like high intensity interval training that was published in jama with people on active yeah. surveillance showing progression in the control group less progression in the experimental group and then when yeah. you take blood and you pour it on petri dishes with cancer prostate cancer cells you saw less you saw regression of these cancer cells in the group yeah. in the experimental group so there is something there and when you look at microenvironment of the cancer you you're trying to lower these uh, chronic inflammatory markers, you're trying to keep your natural killer cells as strong as possible and all these teen lymphocyte cells in the immune system and so forth, and then get out of the way. Many of our colleagues, of your colleagues, are impressed with, hey, gee, how do you treat prostate cancer? This guy, it was Gleason 6. And I said, well, I don't treat prostate cancer. I treat people, right? And so that's the first distinction. Do I get some people that um, after surveillance follow-up biopsies are negative? Sure. But I don't know what's the difference between those that don't do the lifestyle. I mean, did they miss it? Now, yeah. I'm, I'm, honest. I, I, I'm honest. I'm sure honest. Uh, but is the PSA stable or dropped? Is it the same surgeon uh, or the same urologist who did the biopsy with the same MRI technique? All these things? Yeah. So that's as good as it gets. And then I yeah. look at other biomarkers for other things like that's improved. So,
1: well, what, but there again, I don't treat prostate cancer. I
0: treat people. One of the things, things, you're right is, one of things you're
1: doing right, I think, is not just treating the entire patient, but you're treating their entire exposure. It's not, it, people don't take a pill. People need to change their lifestyle. They need sure, to change yeah. the way they think about the world. They need to eat better. Yeah. Eating better is not taking a multivitamin. Eating better is maybe eating less ice cream, which would really be hurtful for me personally. But certainly, you know, <laughs> you, you can give better advice than I can. But but I, I I think eating right, eating in moderation, understanding, you know, what's going into your body. and And again, you and I have spoken about this. This isn't about... You know, consuming a thousand calories a day and, yeah. and, and, and not enjoying what is really one of the true pleasures in life, which is eating food. It's about being mindful about what you're putting in your body so that you don't, you're not eating a cheeseburger every night, you know?
0: Absolutely. I did, I did a podcast on my own. So for the last couple of years, Adam, I've been, I've looked closely at the, the health risk with the consumption of alcohol. Okay, Yeah. closely. Right. I've read maybe 65 papers on alcohol consumption, right? Because it used to be that, oh, a little moderation is fine. The United States is like, for, for men, two drinks a day, not more. For women, one drink a day, not more. Right. So I looked into that because I see what I see with patients.
3: Yeah.
0: Right? It turns out that the rest of the world is like, there's zero benefit for, of alcohol yeah. any alcohol consumption. There's zero health benefit, period, end of story. So not one, not two a day. Not, there's zero benefit. Yeah. That said, right? So the conversation, or at least what I preach is the following. Here's how you work around alcohol. Number one, if you have an alcohol problem, then you should be addressed. Period. End of story. Your health will, you know, your relationship will be a problem. Your health, you will, your sleep, you compromise your sleep, which is one of the important pillars in my uh, program. So if you have an alcohol problem, you should be addressed. And we define what that looks like. The other kind of sort of rule or, uh, is like never more than two drinks. If you need a third drink, ask questions, right, on yeah. any given day. If you, need, if you say, let me get another one, uh, then you need to ask questions. Like what's going on okay. in your life, right? Yeah. And then you really need to look into it. But if those things are fine and you, kinda have, you can have one drink, one of the issues with men in general is loneliness. And we don't have their tribe, they don't have a tribe, they don't have their group, they don't socialize. So if you're good with alcohol, not an alcohol problem, and you get together with friends and, you know, that bottle of whiskey that's from wherever and so forth, and that's your way of getting together, go for it. So it's a matter of guidelines. Yeah. I'm, uh, and I'm saying that because of your ice cream. We'll, we'll talk about that offline. But I'm saying that because how do you break the rules intelligently where you still, you know, you yeah. and your son are going to go to the ice cream place that you all love yeah. and have a yeah. isn't that great? Like you're spending time with your son.
1: No, I agree. So I, I have one thought and then one question for you. The, you know, I talk a lot about how married men live longer than married women. And people often view that through the interaction, the woman's telling you what to do and I think it's about social networks. Yeah. I think the social network, women, married women, unmarried women have very good social networks. Yeah. Married men have pretty good social networks. Uh, unmarried men, uh, and, and I'm speaking generalities, there are obviously yeah. unmarried sure. men that have fantastic social networks. Yeah. But many, many unmarried men don't. Uh, and uh, I think that's probably a lot of the key because we're social creatures and we need it. So my question for you, okay, mm. I can see you agree with me. But my question for you is, and it's about nutrition. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I'm struck by is the guy's diagnosed with fairly significant prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And he says, I want to change my diet. The guy's like 70 years old. He's Mm -hmm. been eating poorly his whole life. Mm -hmm. And I don't have, I I think he should, he should change his diet. But there's a little bit, I often in the back of my mind, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking the time to change his diet was when he was 20 and 30, not when Mm -hmm. he was 70 and already had the disease.
0: Look, so this is a 70-year-old with high-grade uh, cancer. There's, there's several components to that. You have, So I have a term. You got to be holistic, but realistic. At 70 years old, there's only so many changes he, he's going to make. So if his baseline is burgers and french fries, I only have one conversation with them about diet, and that's it. Eat less. Okay? So we talk about time-restricted eating. We talk about these things. I don't care what you eat. Eat less. And then we graduate. So this is a lifestyle is a is a lifestyle It's not a diet. So it's a process. If you're starting at baseline zero, I say eat less. Why? Because when you look at the research hard enough, it all suggests that everything is bad for prostate cancer, right? You have a 70 year old guy. So is it worth is it worth the patient making any change dietary changes? It's it's there's something, well, there, there's, there's the change that's physiological, nutritional, and good for your health. And there's the psychological that you're doing something different. So, the psychological component of making changes, dietary changes, lifestyle changes, I think is important. And the other thing is like 70 year old, 72 years old is not old, at least in my eyes, particularly if their parents yeah. are either still alive. You know, I had a patient with herb. Early on, early on, and so the joke was, well, I'm, here, I'm 82 years old, and I want to get a biopsy. You know, I my high PSA. Was like, and Herb always says, if you want a biopsy, so the, at the next visit, you're going to have to bring your parents and so then he says i could do that Uh, she lives in california she's 102 years old i could i could still bring her so it's always that thing so 70 72 i think maybe i live in this anti-aging world but i think 70 is the new 40 if you will many people that are 70 are living a long healthy life so but even any age the more important thing as it relates to how i approach their dietary changes what's their baseline sometimes i say look i'm vegetarian Well, vegetarians sometimes um, don't eat enough protein, actually. So, like, you need to include more protein and so forth. And this is all related to prostate cancer. The bottom line is, though, when the main, I always start a conversation or a uh, presentation as it relates to diet and prostate cancer that people are eating too much. We're all eating too much. Let's eat less. And then from there we can talk about what to eat, not to eat, in a way that you can do it. I don't want you to, you know, so if you're if you're a vegan, okay, let's figure out how to do a healthy vegan. Because most vegans actually don't eat healthy, and these are the most unhealthy people I know. Uh, yeah. By the way, the study with Pet Pete Carroll and Dean Ornish on lifestyle and, and prostate cancer, active surveillance randomized trial. Dr. Carroll was saying to me once, "It's like, yeah, they're doing pretty well on paper. God, but they don't look healthy, (laughs) you know." So it's like because it's sort of missing the boat. And lastly, I'll say this clearly: as you can see, I'm very passionate about this conversation. Guys on ADT need protein. They need good protein. It's not going to come from plant based. They need either fish, and actually, there's a lot of benefit there, or is your or if you don't have for whatever he's access to fish, then you need like good quality red meat. And I know red meat is not a good thing, but they need—you know—they're—they're they're depleting their body of muscle continuously. Now they're at risk of a fracture or a fall of of things like that. So they need they need they need good protein. So anyway, that's a long winded answer to to
1: the no, question. No, I I, I, to- I totally agree. And 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 you know, do you again? You didn't quite answer the question about leveraging genetics. I mean, I think that's the secret to improving yeah. patients' nutrition because you can intervene earlier. Uh, you know, earlier in their lives, when they're capable yeah. of doing a, a more impactful exercise, making more impactful changes in their diet, making more impactful decisions about mindfulness, and and, yeah. and, I, and I think that's I, I constantly think to myself that uh, genetics is only going to work yeah. if we can then change the environment and influence the genetics or influence the outcome, not through genetics but through other environmental pressures. Yeah, yeah I, you know I, the
0: science and the data as a release to personalized nutrition. I know people use those terms, but it's not it's not personalized to the extent that there is. You look at your genetic. I look at genetic risk and see. Well, based on your genetic risk, you do this. But in terms of beyond that, beyond me, beyond that is 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 it's it, Look, it's 80-20 too. By the way, regardless of what you're trying to reduce your risk of eighty percent, just. Do the right thing, and which is, it starts with eat less. I don't care what it is. Some people are gluten intolerant. The other person, okay, we could get into those nuances. Some people don't tolerate meats well at all. They don't have enough hydrochloric acid, whatever. So then we go into, you know, we help we we set them up for success, not failure. All right, we're gonna wrap it up soon, Adam, because I I we I think we could talk for hours more, but I know that we agree. (laughs) Weekend warrior. So just today. I had a patient. He says, you know, my spouse, you know, NYU is great. I love NYU. Oh my God, that ER is horrible. I said, why? What happened? Well, ER, we were waiting a long time. It was horrible. I said, when did you go? She said, he said, Sunday. I said, well, that explains, because I already knew some data that I read that there are some days that you just don't want to go D- to the ER. I think it's Sunday, Monday-ish kind of thing, weekend, yeah. things like that. Then I read your study a study that you are one of the authors that that suggests that men with aggressive prostate cancer who have to go to the emergency room on a, on a weekend have a 20% higher rate than morbid, more morbidity or mortality than if they went some other time during the week. What's the story there? What's the story behind
1: the story? I, I, I think that's one of the studies that's just descriptive because I think a lot of things are going on there. So number one, I think what a lot of people would point to is, well, maybe the care is different on the weekends, which is probably true. I mean, the interventional radiologists are not in the hospital. The surgeons are not in the hospital. The, the operating room is not fully staffed. The, those things are definitely true. But it's also true that patients go in on the weekends for different reasons. Patients are sicker. I mean, if it's Saturday night, and you know the emergency room is crowded, you're not going to go in unless you really need to go into the hospital. Mm. So I, I think my guess, because most reasons people present with metastatic prostate cancer, it's truly an emergency. I don't think it's so much what's going on in the hospital as who's presenting with what problem. I'm not saying that there aren't some issues where, you know, you're presenting and you need some sort of specialist care and that individual or that service is not operating at 100% Saturday at 2 o'clock in the morning. But, uh, but I think a lot of it is the, is the patient characteristics. I mean, I won't go, if I can avoid going to the emergency room on the weekends, I will. So if I go on the weekend, I'm really sick. You know what I mean? I really mm-hmm. have a problem. <laughs> That's right. What do you mean by a patient characteristic? Well, I mean, it's a real problem. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, they have pain. They fractured something yeah, uh, yeah. due to a met. They have they're in they're in urine because of uh, meaning they're not making any urine because something's obstructed. They, they they can't wait till Monday until there's a physician available and avoid right. going to the emergency room. So they're sicker. They're sicker. Right, I understand. I, I I think what you might have been alluding to is there are disparities around who uses emergency rooms, mm-hmm. uh, and I think we have to recognize that may be playing into this as well. By disparities, I mean people that in our society that are a little less fortunate tend to have to use emergency rooms, and tend to be a little sicker by the time that they present to the emergency room. But I would have trouble believing that that would be more of a problem on a weekend than during the week. Possibly. I think it's weekend,
0: a product of weekend behavior you know, that's different than during the week, whether it's you know people getting high or drunk more drunk on the weekends and doing yeah. all kinds of things and it just packs up the the er
1: i i no, i would i would yes i mean let's face it anybody who's been on a in, in an emergency room on a weekend knows a different group of people are coming in again saturday at 2 a.m than are coming yeah. in you know on the easter sunday you know what i mean right. uh, that's, that's uh, right. a, little, a little more fights a little more alcohol a little more car yeah. accidents and, and that also may contribute to this as well actually In that those more serious issues like a car accident or something like that can distract the overwhelming emergency room and people that have lesser problems. And I'm not saying they're not as important, but not as emergent, get pushed a little bit to the back. Hmm. And though that can add up to patients not doing quite as well. Uh, Right. Um, You want to go to emergency room when you're going to get the attention properly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Don't don't you know, whatever you do, don't go with my. With my blog, I have a newsletter and around the AUA, it says, hey, don't try to get a urological problem around this time unless your right. urological problem is in the state and city where the, where the, then you could just walk outside and just grab anybody. It'll be, they'll help grab you. anybody.
1: <laughs> I would agree <laughs> with that.
0: Adam, final words from you. Oh, about, about what? About nutrition, about Whatever. life, about mindfulness? Whatever. Your, your, the approach prostate
1: cancer, where, where it's going, where you think yeah. it's going. Um, well, I think, I think we've seen tremendous uh, evolution in the treatment of prostate cancer, you know, over the past 20 to 30 years, you know, diagnostically around MRIs, pet imaging, which we haven't talked about, mm-hmm. around surgical techniques improving, radiation therapy in, uh, improving, and uh, the treatment of metastatic disease. I mean, personalized medicine is here. We sequence mm-hmm. the tumor and we decide what drug uh, the patient uh, should be getting. What I'm, what I'm really excited about is the unknown future. So mm-hmm. we look now and think how far we've come in the past 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. We're going to go just as far in the next 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I truly believe uh, that we'll continue to see huge improvements in our management of prostate cancer, all the way from prevention to uh, treatment of metastatic disease. And, and that's very exciting. Very yeah,
0: I, I I I agree with you. I, I, I we're on the same page there. I, I from my mind, I think that anytime the word multidisciplinary practice comes, when when anyone says that, I want it. I want it to include lifestyle medicine. Yes, lifestyle medicine, which is a term by the way, it's a whole institution, should be part of of a multidisciplinary approach. And now the patient is again there's the psychological component that it's not just doctor what what do you want me to do i'll just lay there no they're proactive they're involved in their own well-being and i think that's powerful
1: no i totally agree and i think we view it very much through the prism of uh, prevention yeah uh, but we should view it through the entire scope of the disease entire so the scope- patient undergoing surgery or radiation uh, surgery who needs prehabilitation in order to get the best out of it the sure. uh, patient undergoing radiation needs support for, as you highlighted, muscle mass, but also bone mass uh, and uh, cognitive abilities as they are treated with androgen deprivation, all the way through to the patient who has metastatic disease, who needs support in order to keep their mind and body whole as they go through these fairly intensive treatments. So I, I totally agree with you. And it shouldn't be viewed simply, as I said, through the prism of how do we prevent disease? It's how do we support patients so they live the best possible lives throughout the entire spectrum of the disease? A hundred percent.
0: Adam, thanks so much. I really appreciate this time with you here and um, I'll make it a point to find you at the AUA, although the AUA is very busy, at least at that point we'll meet in person or at one of your next conferences that you probably hopefully invite me to. And if it would have been Puerto Rico, we would have gone to the rainforest and done all
1: kinds of things. i spent a lot of time there. So next time. Thanks for the hint uh about uh conference uh, I you know I, I i hear you loud and clear we need a little more uh work on that at all of our conferences but definitely at the aua don't worry if, if you don't find me i'll find you okay that's
0: awesome thanks so much talk to you soon our next sponsor partner has a product i use literally every day i'm talking about ag1 you know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time, and <laughs> it, ha- it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible, but you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With- in AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo again. That is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Gio to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo Podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.